Today's case is one of the most baffling and outright bizarre stories you will ever hear about. When two teenage boys are attacked and one is left in serious condition after suffering multiple stab wounds, police would soon uncover a conspiracy that seems too weird to be true. This is the Goose Green Stabbing. Well, howdy there, stranger. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to Beers with Queers, the true crime podcast where I research a case and Brad and potentially you guys know nothing about it. Nothing at all. So to start things off, this case kind of came out of nowhere for me. It wasn't what was originally planned for episode 13. And just to give you kind of like a peek behind the curtain i have a whole google spreadsheet of potential cases to cover and a schedule of when to do each of them and i have it pretty well mapped out till about episode 20 ish but i'm always researching and looking for new cases and that's pretty much my nightly routine at this point get ready for bed lay in bed for like an hour just scouring the deepest pockets of the internet for true crime stories and that is how i stumbled across this truly fucking bizarre story a few nights ago So today we are going to be talking about the Goose Green Stabbing, and I know that sounds weird. Now, some of you may have actually heard this one before, or at least the overall narrative that I'm about to tell you. It has started to pick up a little steam on sites like Reddit and blog posts for just how bonkers and ridiculous it is. But today you're going to hear us tell it. So I'll leave it at that for now. I don't want to give too much information away just yet because this one's kind of similar to the Billy Greenwood case we did a few episodes ago, and uh, it's just really fucking weird. That's all I have to say. And this one is kind of more, um, it's serious, but it's on the less serious side just for how weird it is, so let's just get into it. So a few things to note before we go too deep into it. The names of several people have been changed in this story due to the fact that they were underage when the crimes occurred. I do think their real names have since leaked and are out there if you know where to look. But to keep it simple, we're just going to use their aliases. So, let's just jump right into it. So on June 29th, 2003, in a small area known as Goose Green, located right outside Manchester, England, two boys, John Chaffins, who was 14, and Mark Owens, who was 16, were walking home from a nearby mall in Altrincham. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. When they decided to take a shortcut through an isolated alleyway. However, what started as a peaceful walk home soon turned into a nightmare when about 20 minutes after the two teens entered the alleyway, police received a call from someone frantically telling them that they needed to send an ambulance to the alleyway immediately. Now police and an ambulance quickly arrived at the scene and entered the alleyway to be greeted by a horrific sight. Mark was covered in blood, crying, and bent down over John, who police could tell was very close to death. John was lying in a pool of blood and suffered from multiple stab wounds to his chest and abdomen and was quickly bleeding out. Now, John was, of course, loaded into an ambulance and quickly driven to the hospital where he had to undergo emergency surgery. John had been stabbed three times, with the first stab to his chest being non-life-threatening, 
and only a few centimeters deep. The other two, however, were to his abdomen and were much more severe. John suffered two six-inch stab wounds that pierced his liver, a kidney, and caused him to have to undergo emergency surgery to remove his gallbladder, which it had ruptured. And blood had begun to fill his chest cavity and was putting pressure on his lungs, causing him to be unable to breathe and nearly bleed to death. And I can't even imagine that feeling of not being able to uh, suck in air all the way. So, you know, that's really fucking scary situation. Suffocating is a really bad way to go. Especially on your own blood. So He almost died twice on the operating table, but after several hours, doctors were finally able to get him in a stable condition, and he was sent to the ICU to begin his long road to recovery. So he does survive. That's the good news. Now, while all of this is going on, Mark, who had no visible injuries or room, rooms, wounds to attend to, was being questioned by investigators about what the hell happened. Mark finally calmed down enough and began to tell Detective Julian Ross what went down. Apparently, as the two boys walked down the alleyway, they were approached by a young man in his early 20s wearing a black hoodie and black jeans. He didn't say anything as he walked up to the boys and began to violently stab John before taking off further down the alleyway and disappearing. So, of course, police immediately put out an all-points bulletin to let other officers in the area know, you know, be on the lookout for a suspect who's wielding a knife and stabbing children. Detective Julian confirmed to reporters that arrived at the scene that the attack did seem odd as it was completely unprovoked and warned everyone to keep an eye out for a knife-wielding maniac. And of course that put the whole community and surrounding area on guard as everyone began to watch their backs, suspecting that they might be the next victim of this maniac. And of course, like I said, this came as a huge surprise to everyone in this small town. You know, it had little, little reports of violence, let alone a teenage boy almost being stabbed to death. So they were, they were on it, trying to track down this would-be killer. But police and the town alike were about to learn the truth. Plot twist, there was no knife-wielding maniac on the loose. That's what I thought. So detectives sensed something was immediately off about Mark's version of events. For one, Mark stated that after the stabbing, the man took off running further down the alleyway before disappearing into the night. But there was a small problem. The alleyway ended at a dead, a dead end, followed by a 40-foot drop. Why there was a 40-foot drop, I don't know. None of the reports said anything, but he wasn't going anywhere. But it also didn't make sense. The man would have nowhere to go, and if he was trying to kill John, why would he leave a witness behind? So all suspicion immediately fell on Mark and was all but confirmed a few days later when police actually found a security camera from a nearby shop that was pointed directly at the entrance of the alleyway. Police went back and checked the footage from the day of the attack. And wouldn't you know it, the footage showed John and Mark entering the alleyway, followed about 20 minutes later by the police and ambulance arriving at the scene. No one came in, no one came out during that time. So, of course, within days of the attack, after reviewing the footage, police officials arrested Mark and charged him with attempted murder. During his second interview with police, Mark finally cracked and admitted that, yes, he had been the one who stabbed John. When asked why, he simply stated because he heard voices, telling him to do it. Following the interview, Mark was sent to a juvenile detention center to await his trial. Now, soon after this, John recovered enough in the hospital to finally talk to police and let them know what happened. Now, at first, his story did differ. 
He said that it wasn't Mark that attacked him. It was a random stranger. However, after pressure from police, he finally admitted the truth that, yes, Mark was his attacker. He went on to say that Mark did it once, stood up holding me, and did it again. He fell to the ground with Mark kneeling over him, repeatedly telling John to trust him before yanking him back to his feet and stabbing him again. When John cried out in pain, Mark began to cry and begged him to be quiet because someone would hear him. Like, you know, sorry for the inconvenience, bitch. Please don't get me caught while I murder you. So fucking inconsiderate. Now, John began to cry out and begged Mark to call an ambulance because he could tell he was dying. You killed me, bro, John yelled at Mark, to which Mark responded, Don't say that. Don't let that be the last thing you ever say. Mark said, I love you, bro, before jamming the knife once again into John's stomach. Afterwards, Mark stood around for almost 20 minutes, letting John slowly bleed out before he finally called an ambulance. So, that's the end. Right? So, Mark confessed. John's recovering. John corroborated the footage that they saw. Mark confessed to it. So, it's uh, the story's over. See you guys next week. I mean, it wouldn't be as weird as you were saying if something wasn't about to plot twist. No, no, no. As we've learned from past episodes, if you've heard past episodes of ours, there's that's never that fucking simple. So, following their interview with Mark... Police, of course, got a search warrant for his house, where he lived with his parents, to look for any potential evidence. After rummaging around his room and finding nothing, you know, really noteworthy, they then focused on his computer. After browsing through it, police soon learned that Mark spent hours on the internet talking and communicating with hundreds of people, but pretty soon one name in particular began to stand out. A 44-year-old woman by the name of Janet Dobinson had been communicating nonstop with Mark since April of 2003, and the two seemed to have a sexual or at least online relationship going on, judging by a lot of the text. But it was the last few messages just the day before the stabbing that really caught their attention. On June 28, 2003, Mark and Janet exchanged dozens of messages, all of them related to Janet laying out the plans Mark needed to follow through in order to murder John. So here's a little excerpt from some of that conversation. You want me to kill him? Asked Mark. Yes. And just leave him there to die? What should I say to him? Should I just stand there? And I will say all of this is written in that early 2000s abbreviations for all the words. So it really read like, and just leave him to die. What should I say to him? Stand there. (laughs) And I kind of translated it for you guys. So you're welcome. Now, Janet went on to say, get him to a quiet place, buy a knife and gloves, get some boots. The knife has to be big enough to stab him and make him bleed to death. Janet told Mark that after stabbing John, he should wait a a few minutes before calling an ambulance. She ended the conversation that day by telling him, make sure John knows you love him as you do it. I'll see you at the police station afterwards. Now, in total, police confiscated a shit ton of texts and emails between Mark and several people he was talking to at the time. In total, it was over 58,000 lines of text, 133 gigabytes of data, and one investigator even said if all of it was converted to paper, it would literally be something like 46,000 feet tall. 133 gigabytes of data? Mm Mm-hmm. That in early 2000? Yeah, 2003. Wow, he must have had some kind of mobile plan. Uh, I think both of them, he's from a little affluent family, but we'll we'll get to that. Um, 
Now, police then began the painstaking task of sorting through all of this, trying to piece together more evidence and clues and track down the people he was communicating with, starting with Janet Dobinson. Now, police couldn't piece together a lot about Janet other than what she had messaged about herself to Mark. She was 44, she had two kids, and was in a loveless and sexless marriage with her husband, and claimed to Mark to be a British Secret Service agent and actually the third most important agent in the British Secret Service hierarchy. And boy, did she have quite a few secrets to tell Mark, who, reminder, is a 16-year-old boy. So to give you a little background on Mark, he was the only child of two working middle-class parents and by all accounts a very well-rounded kid. He never got into trouble, he played soccer, plenty of friends, and he was preparing to actually go to a local business college, and many described him as being very mild mild-mannered, and sweet. So he was, a, he was a decent kid all around before this, so this kind of came as a surprise. Now, his only real downfall being he liked to spend a lot of time on the internet, which honestly is, of course, pretty normal when you're that age. I think for those of us who grew up in the digital age, like when uh, internet first started becoming popular, it really helped a lot of us and still helps a lot of us escape from our problems a bit, you know. But of course, the internet also has a dark side to it especially for young kids and teenagers talking with people they meet online. And this is not me being one of those preachy old timers, because even though I'm only 25, everyone young and old needs to be careful of who they're talking to. But as it turns out, Mark in particular was very impressionable and for lack of a better word, gullible. And uh, that's about to become extremely clear the further along we get with this. So, Mark and Janet began communicating with each other in April of 2003, and after just a few days of flirty back-and-forth messages with Janet, telling Mark all about her terrible home and love life, telling him how he's the only guy who makes her feel comfortable, and he's the only one that she can confide to, she finally drops a pretty major fucking bombshell. Mark is being watched by the Secret Service. Now, Janet would confide in Mark that not only is he being watched by four high-ranking Secret Service officials, but several other people around him are also undercover agents, such as the mailman, several of Mark's teachers, and the ice cream man. (laughs) And all of them had one goal in common, to watch over and observe Mark to see if he was qualified to join their ranks in the Secret Service. Now, Janet began to promise Mark that he had been watched for several months and showed potential for not only being a Secret Service agent, but also a millionaire, which she promised he would be if he did everything she asked him to and passed the agent's tests they would give him, which, I guess kind of brief trigger warning, included masturbating on a webcam for her while she discussed and told him about her adventures standing guard for the Queen. Now, one day in early May... Janet sent Mark an email saying, Could you kill someone close to you? You'll be tested on this later. To which Mark responded, Um, I don't know. Never really thought about it. I guess so. It's at this point that Janet delivered some shocking and devastating news. Mark's friend John was dying from a terminal brain tumor, which had devastating consequences for the British Secret Service, according to Janet, The British uh, Secret Service needed John dead and fast. Now, when Mark questioned, you know, why can't they just wait for the tumor to kill him, Janet told him she wasn't at liberty to discuss that with him yet because he wasn't an agent yet. 
but that it was the utmost importance that John be killed ASAP. And she needed Mark's help to do it, and if he helped her, then there was going to be a very hefty reward in it for Mark. This would have to be done to a teenager, because only a teenager would think they were the center of the universe. You said that, and I actually wrote that in here. I was like, now I know all of you are saying, like, this can't be real. No one is that gullible. But if any of you have seen a single episode of Catfish, like that one dude that thought he was dating Katy Perry. Which we met. Which, yeah, we've met before, actually. waiter once. And he really did think he was dating Katy Perry. Because I asked. And so it's one of those situations where it's like, it seems so fucking stupid. But it, hey, weirder things have happened. Some people, it's true, they convince themselves that anything's true. And a teenager especially, yeah. they're just like, I am the center of this universe. Everything revolves around me. So I'm like, this would have to be a teenager because if somebody come up to me, I'd be like, one, I ain't got time for that anymore. Two, why would anyone care about what i done? Three, nah, I'm not qualified for that. And plus, I don't want the responsibility. I have enough responsibility in my life. Well, you're not being watched by the the ice cream man to see if you're a secret service agent. This is serious for me. I lived out in the woods my entire life. You were just lucky you had an ice cream man. We have never had an ice cream man. I have never had an ice cream man in my entire life. So you're a lucky person, whether he's watching you or not. So, of course, like I said, Janet offered a very hefty reward for Mark if he went through with this mission. Janet went on to say that John was actually worth over 568 billion pounds, which for our friends and listeners in the U.S., that translates to about $683 billion, which I actually looked up. That's more than Jeff Bezos even, by like a lot. I think, um, well, actually, Google thinks that his net worth is about $120 billion. So apparently John, a 14-year-old boy, can buy Jeff Bezos six times over. So, um, hey, you never know. But there were only a few problems that had to, they had to get through to get to the money. First of all, all the money in the form of jewels and gold was locked in a safe. Two, John was the only one who had the code in his head. And three... The safe was at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. So yeah, there might be a few hurdles to overcome to get that uh, that money. Now, Janet like stressed that not even the queen had access to this safe. Only John would be able to open it. If you're wondering, then wait. Why would they want John dead ASAP if he's the only one who can open the safe? Don't ask me, because they never seem to cross Mark's mind the entire time he's talking with Janet. So, um, that is just going to be a mystery of this case. Mark did ask, though. He did. Isn't it illegal to kill someone? But Janet assured him that it wasn't in his case, since it was a matter of national security. Now, Janet promised Mark that if he is able to carry out this murder of John then he will be showered with rewards for his contribution to the crown, including 80 million pounds, a career in the Secret Service, and sexual favors from Janet herself. Oh, wow. She takes her job very seriously. (laughs) And four Subway coupon books. I mean, I'd do it for a Subway coupon book. I love Subway. Now, Mark was given the code number 47695. 
I don't know what that means. It's never brought up again, but that is the number he's given by Janet. And told that he would be meeting with a powerful prime minister once the murder is complete. Now, this leads us back to the day before the stabbing. And Janet assured Mark that once he is taken to the police station, she'll be waiting for him to discuss... And he'll, she'll be waiting for him disguised as a detective superintendent because she's also a master of disguise and only recently finished doubling as an airplane stewardess for an undercover mission. So she is a busy girl. After the attack on John, Janet never messages Mark again nor signs into her email address, leaving police at a dead end as to where to go from here and find out who is behind Janet Dobbinson because... Spoiler alert, I don't think she's a real secret agent. I don't think secret agents offer sexual favors for killing a 14-year-old boy. But, you know, what the or hell do I know? make a minor masturbate in front of them. In the game. And she really did. She's like, I got to tell you the secret mission I'm on for the queen, but can I see you first? So, Predator. Yeah. Predator alert. Predator. So at this point, police are on the fucking hunt for someone posing as Janet Dobinson but have absolutely zero leads to go on. No photo, no real name. She's just a ghost in cyberspace. So police began to dig further into the chat logs of Mark to see if anything else might be helpful, and boy, did they find some interesting stuff. So police soon found that the strangest of Mark's interactions online started towards the beginning of 2003, when he began to communicate with several different characters on chat forums. The first and probably the most prominent of these people was a young teenage girl named Rachel East. Now, Rachel was beautiful. She looked like a model in all of her photos, which is only one singular picture for all of her profiles, and soon began and soon became smitten with 16-year-old Mark, and the two began to form a really strong bond, you know, talking every day, telling each other how much they love each other and all the jazz. So by April 3rd, 2003, Mark was finally ready to meet Rachel in person. Except, sadly, Rachel had terrible news. She was being stalked and tormented by a man named Kevin, who was constantly threatening to abduct her and rape her, even though she also stated that he's a homosexual drug dealer. But, alright. <laughs> now, Rachel said there was only one way to satisfy Kevin and stop him from hurting her. Mark would have to masturbate on webcam for her, or wank, as they say over in the UK, and Mark happily agreed because he loved Rachel and he wanted to do anything for her. Plus, but, it doesn't take much to talk a teenager boy, into wanking. No. Sadly, he is like just bait for predators that want him to do it online for him. Poor guy. Now, a few weeks after... Uh, I'm sorry. But despite doing everything the stalker asked, it wasn't enough to stop him. And pretty soon, tragedy struck. A few weeks after not hearing from Rachel, Mark was contacted by Kevin, the homosexual stalker, who proceeded to taunt and brag to Mark about his torture and murder of Rachel West. Now, I want to say here, of course, I think by now all of you have discovered this is bullshit, right? And you may be wondering, why the hell does this matter to the story and where the hell is this going? Or you may be thinking, oh my gosh, that's what happened to Rachel. I was wondering what happened to her. Or she might be real. That might have happened. And I'm sorry if I brought that up. But um, I apologize. Rest in peace, Rachel. She was a real one. But I promise you, stick with me. All of this is leading to something. And it's all going to make sense here in a few minutes. 
So Kevin messaged Mark saying, and this is a trigger warning, it does get kind of graphic. Kevin said, I kicked her in the stomach and then held her head under water, then out, freezing cold. She stained my sheets for how much she was bleeding, and you weren't there for her, no matter how much she screamed for you. Kevin then said that he and several friends gang-raped Rachel before murdering her. Now this news crushed Mark. To the point it began to affect his real life too. He began to fall behind in classes. He began to lash out in anger. Uh, His grades began dropping from A's and B's to D's and F's. He began more and more withdrawn. And with that, he wanted to spend more and more time on the internet. Fortunately for Mark, a new beautiful woman was about to swoop in and rescue him from his deepening depression. A beautiful teenage girl named Lindsay East. Wait. Did he ever tell anybody about what happened to Rachel? Like an authority, a parent, a teacher, anything? No. I, no. <laughs> it was, um, it's just one of those things you do with yourself, I guess. It's like, oh, well, rest in peace, Rachel. Sorry. Well, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. Rachel's over. Now it's Lindsay, Rachel's sister. Oh, wow, it's her sister. Okay. The two quickly hit it off over their shared grief for Rachel's untimely demise and soon began to become smitten with one another. After a few weeks of talking with each other, Mark began to really, really like Lindsay, and he moved on really fucking fast, and felt that he was ready to meet her in person. And that's when tragedy struck. Lindsay was murdered by the British Secret Service. Again, crushing poor Mark's spirits. And now a lot of y'all may be wondering how the hell is anyone falling for this shit? And this is where I wrote that part. But if you, how is anyone falling for this shit? But if you've seen a, even a single episode of Catfish, you know there are people who believe anything. People will believe what they want to believe, especially when you're 16 and you're impressionable. But wait, we are not done yet with the East Sisters. Because shortly after Lindsay's death at the hands of the British Secret Service, a miracle happened. Rachel was alive! (laughs) In a shocking twist of fate, Rachel didn't actually die, but instead had fallen into a coma and had her death faked by the Secret Service to protect her. And her unborn baby. Sounds like As the World Turns or The Guiding Lot. (laughs) Oh, uh, it's like a telenovela. We'll get to that. There's actually a quote in here from the judge. It's like it's a soap opera on the internet. But yes, Rachel was now pregnant, and she wanted Mark to help her raise it as their own, and he agreed. But not even two weeks later, Rachel would disappear again, and in her place, Janet Dobinson would emerge and begin planting the seed in Mark's head that he needs to murder John. So now, at this point, police quickly pieced together that whoever was behind the Janet Dobinson account was also behind the accounts for Rachel, Kevin, and Lindsay. But again, after the stabbing, all of the emails ceased responding or messaging Mark, and with no real paper trail or way to track them down, police were at a dead end. So for a couple months, uh, nothing happened. They couldn't go anywhere with the case. John was at home recuperating. Mark was still awaiting his trial, and they were at a loss from where to go from there. Now, eventually, a shopkeeper named Rachel East was found and arrested and brought in for questioning related to the case. 
but it was quickly found that this poor girl had nothing to do with this, and she just shared the unfortunate coincidence of having the name Rachel. So for three months, police monitored the logs of Janet, just waiting and hoping that whoever was behind the account would log in again and allow them to track their location. They were about to give up hope until October of 2003, Janet Dobbinson logged back online. Police quickly zeroed in on the IP address and were able to track the logs all the way back to its source in a quiet suburban neighborhood. Detectives rushed to the house and knocked on the door, ready to arrest their, to make their second arrest in the stabbing of John Chaffins. After what felt like forever, their suspect finally opened the door and was placed under arrest because, surprise, Janet Dobinson didn't exist. Janet was none other than John Chaffins. So I'll pause there and let you take that in for a minute. So it was him? Like I'll give you so like so everyone collect your thoughts. I didn't say that wrong. Janet was John. In October two thousand three, John Chaffins was placed under arrest for the incitement of his own murder having used the fake account of Janet Dobinson to coax and detail plans to Mark about how to carry it out. So, of course, now a lot of you are probably like, what the actual fuck? So let's go back through it and start from the beginning. Yeah, I got the names mixed up just because it was such a turnaround. So the guy who got stabbed was the one who set it up. Was the one who set it up. Yeah. And knew he was going to go in and get stabbed that night. Yeah. Wow, okay, this one's a weird one. You wanted a plot twist. <laughs> and that's why I said when I first read that, and I was like, I have to replace episode 13 because I want to talk about this one really right away. Yeah, it literally made my brain switch, and I <laughs> changed the names of the two guys, and I thought, oh, the one guy's got, like, Tyler Durden syndrome from, like, mm-hmm. uh, Fight Club where he's, like, sending himself messages but no, the one that was the victim is actually the insider the of the mastermind. Crime. Wow, and what a shitty friend. Like, I mean, he was putting his friend through all this crazy stuff before. Mm-hmm. Again, Man, he did set it up himself. Also remember, he is... Uh, John's 14, so he's younger than uh, Mark is, even. And he, like, masterminded this whole thing. So let's go back a bit and let's tell you about John. So, John had a pretty rough go at things from the very beginning. He was raised by a single mom for the first few years of his life before receiving a revolving door of stepdads who were all bad on drugs, as he described them. He was also described as having having a very gentle and withdrawn personality. Now, he was known by his teachers to be very bright in school and a master with computers and technology. But he was also the target of some intense bullying over his small frame and the fact that he was secretly gay. This caused him to withdraw more and more, seeking solace on the internet. Of course, on the internet, he realized he could be whoever he wanted to be. He didn't have to be scrawny little John. He could be someone popular, someone cool, someone all the boys wanted to talk to. Now, John was pretty open about his involvement with the murder plot. After his arrest, he didn't try to deny it. He didn't didn't place the blame fully on Mark and was pretty candid with the police, saying, I was honestly surprised Mark believed it all. I said a lot of shit that didn't make sense. And so he was like, I can't believe it either. But um, he did it. And John would spend hours 
on the computer. Eventually, he stopped eating unless he was forced to because he just would not move from the computer. He created the character of Rachel East, someone everyone wanted to talk to, and began to message and interact with up to 60 to 70 people a day. Probably mostly guys. Probably. And I think that's just the attention thing. It's like, you know, when you go to school and you're kind of overlooked and you don't have many friends, and then you go home and you literally, you can be the most popular kid in school on the internet. And it's that, uh, it's just one of those appeals, you know, the anonymity of online. And plus, if he's gay and he can't talk to guys as a gay man, he can talk to them as a female online and, I guess, fulfill something, you know, maybe? Maybe. He's trying to fulfill something. Well, I mean, besides getting himself killed, but, I mean, he's also talking to a whole lot of other people, so don't tell him what other stories were out there. So finally, in February of 2003, John, as Rachel, met Mark, and the two began talking, and that's when John began to develop feelings for Mark. Eventually, Rachel introduced John as her brother to Mark, and that's how the two became friends, and actually started hanging out in person in person, and having sleepovers at each other's houses. Again, I know everyone is probably wondering, why the hell would he not put two and two together if he's hanging out with John but not Rachel? Love makes people blind. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) He did not question it, though. Eventually, however, the more he created the web of lies in an attempt to try and keep Mark's attention, the more depressed he became due to the fact he knew Mark didn't really want him. He wanted Rachel, and that led him to developing suicidal thoughts and made him begin thinking of ways he could potentially off himself. That included the help of his unrequited love, Mark. Now, John even went so far as to confirm confirm Janet's claim that he had a terminal brain tumor, telling Mark that he got news from his doctor about his uh, forthcoming death. John showed little to no remorse for his manipulation of Mark, saying that it was like training a dog almost. Now, of course, police also immediately question if Mark really did truly believe it because he made no mention of Janet or anyone in his initial interview with police. Remember, he said he heard voices. But according to Janet, she was supposed to be waiting for him at the police station. He never asked for her or anything like that. And even John questioned how much of the story that Mark actually believed and how much of it he was just making himself think he believed so he could justify doing impulses he already wanted to do. And so um, I'll let you be the judge of that. Now, of course, this case immediately blew the fuck up all over in the UK, becoming the only known case in history where someone is tried for inciting their own murder. But all of that media frenzy was quickly snuffed out when a judge ordered the case to be sealed and the names of the two boys to be withheld due to both being underage at the time. Now, the trial of both boys, who were tried together, began in May, and it was Definitely a bizarre case that nobody was sure of how to go about and present. Because, on one hand, Mark's lawyer presented that John was the mastermind behind his own murder plot and manipulated and brainwashed Mark into doing his bidding so it should only be him that's convicted. And, of course, John's lawyer, on the other hand, is like, Mark's literally the one that fucking stabbed John three times and left him almost to bleed to death. So both sides were kind of at an impasse here. I mean, honestly, I can see where they're both coming from. Both deserve time for it and deserve to be prosecuted. 
But both boys eventually pled guilty and received two years of supervised probation, uh, which meant no unsupervised internet access for both boys, and neither of them can ever see or speak to each other again. After that, they were free to go, and that was it. The judge felt due to their ages, they should get light sentences, and since nobody really knew how to prosecute such a bizarre case, they were both just kind of let go. But that's the thing, it's almost like um, in school when you would fight somebody and they're just like, just ignore him, just don't talk to him. And that's kind of how it was here. It's like, you stabbed me, He's like, but you convinced me to stab you. So it's just one of those weird cases, like everyone's like, I don't fucking know, man, just go. Yeah, they're like, this is so weird. We don't really want to have anything to do with it. Uh, you two, go have a nice laugh. Mm-hmm. Don't do this to anybody else, please. It's kind of like, was it last year? Last week we were talking, it's like, everybody gets one. You get one murder, and then that's it. Just one murder. You get one, and then you better be good after that. So now Mark would later say how he felt ashamed and couldn't believe he let himself be fooled like that. John, on the other hand, showed no signs of remorse and even relishes in his infamous status, often returning to and hanging around the alleyway where he almost died in hopes that people will recognize him and bring it up so he can talk about it. Now, although now although the judge had the case files sealed and the names of both boys withheld, like I said, it's pretty easy to find with a quick Google search, but... um. I'll leave that to y'all if your morbid curiosity gets the best of you because I don't want to get sued. Uh, John and Mark have never contacted or spoken again about the incident, although John did cry when asked a few years later, stating that he missed the friendship with Mark even though he knew it was fake. And that is the Goose Green Stabbing. That was a weird one. You were right. That really was a weird one. It actually, like I said, it flipped my brain for a second. I got the two guys... I was like, man, I had to have their names mixed up. It wasn't the guy that was stabbed that done that, was it? Oh, you wanted a twist, eh? It was the dude that got stabbed. That's it's pretty crazy. That's a crazy one. And so, um, and yeah, and I'm sorry, this episode's going to be kind of short compared to the other episodes. And I'm sorry it's not as in-depth as a lot of our other episodes are because a lot of the details from this case were sealed and they're still not released for some fucking reason, even though they're adults at this point and they've moved on with their lives. Well, I think that stuff stays sealed from that case. I mean, just because you grow up doesn't mean all of a sudden everything opens up. So That's true. It would make sense for everything to still be gagged and you not actually... Like, I was gagged when I found I was about out to say, that, <laughs> that the murderer was actually being manipulated by the victim, you know, so... But... It makes sense that there's still not a lot of information out. Plus, too, it seems so convoluted and everything that I would say when they were putting this stuff together, they're just like, man, okay, what the, f- what, what is going <laughs> what the on fuck? here? So, so yeah, this was an interesting one, and I really wanted to tell you guys about it. Um, so, again, my apologies if this episode's a little short, but we will be ne- back next weekend with an all-new episode, and until then... If you guys enjoy us, please rate us five stars on Spotify or um, iTunes. Leave us a review. It helps us out a lot. We love to hear your feedback. And if you want to follow us, keep up to date or suggest a case or see photos from the case we cover each week, you can follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod. That's P-O-D, pod. Or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And until 
next week. Stay dangerous out there, my friends. See you guys. Bye.